Hey everyone, how you doing? Today we have the first interview of the Our Way Forward podcast and it's with a beautiful, lovely woman named Amanda. She has over 40 years experience in a surgical setting working for the NHS and private hospitals uh, around the London and the southeast of England. And this is a this is her story that she's going to tell us about being on the front line of the NHS's response to the COVID-19 pandemic from the beginning of 2020 all the way through. And we find ourselves in a situation now where she has to question the official narrative that's been handed down from the government and the BBC. Really, really fascinating. Let's get on with it. And thanks for listening. Amanda, hi. Nice to meet you. Hello. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, this is obviously our way forward, the podcast, and um, this is the first interview on there. And we met recently uh, via a Telegram group of my wife Kelly. We don't live very far away at all, and we seem to feel the same way about many of these things to do with with COVID. Should we just get a, a brief introduction into you and, and your background and, and what it is you do. Yeah, sure. Um, well, basically I am an operating theatre technician or an operating department practitioner. They're, they're, they're called different names. Um, so we are uh, um, a degree level trained specifically for an operating theatre. And uh, when, when we train, um, we're trained in all aspects of anaesthetics, surgery and recovery room, which are the three sort of main areas um, in the operating department. So we don't come under the same category as nurses or doctors. We're kind of like the paramedical group, um, probably similar um, in a professional sense to people like physiotherapists and cardiac technicians. We come under the same professional governance and bodies as those people. But basically, um, as a, a theatre practitioner, we are trained, as I say, to work in all different areas of the operating theatre. Um, some specialise in one area or another. Um, some remain multi-skilled, and that's what I've done over the years. I've remained multi-skilled. I've been working in an operating theatre for about 40 years. In fact, this year it will be 40 years. Wow. So it's a long time, lots of experience. Um, I worked in the NHS for over 30 years um, and lots of experience there um, and you know in recent years I've been working in the private sector. Um, so you know my experience really with the um, advent of Covid which was you know really came into force at the beginning of last year really so it would have been 2020 when people were aware sort of in the December I think of 2019 that there was something on the horizon yeah well, that's, that's when we feel we had it as a family absolutely yeah, yeah. I, and that's the experience I've you know heard from many people that you know and also many people where I work were actually off sick you know with yeah. really serious kind of upper respiratory tract illnesses at that time um, but the sort of dictat wasn't coming down through until really probably January or February of 2020. So, so that's when you had, you know, people from the NHS and Department of Health actually saying something is on its way, something's coming, we need to prepare. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and obviously because we're private sector um, it doesn't didn't affect us in entirely the same way that it affected the NHS simply because we are private sector so you know it's it's private patients that we deal with but we had heard on the horizon that they would be stopping all routine surgery so really that meant that we would stop too so I think probably by about March of that year that all routine surgery right across the country was stopped completely uh, and that included the private sector as well because obviously um, you know the numbers were sort of building in intensive care of patients that were uh, coming in and needing to be ventilated and in ITU yeah um, and unfortunately you know the, the issue is that the people that actually deal with those cases uh, are the anaesthetists and the intensivists so um, just to give you a kind of background you know an anaesthetist is a qualified doctor that's specialized in anaesthetics right and we work with the anaesthetists like in our anaesthetic practice the two people in the anaesthetic room that you need to be there legally to actually have an anaesthetic and have your surgery um, has to be the anaesthetist and a, a theatre practitioner like myself you, yeah um, so if we've got no anaesthetists then we can't run operating lists um, and they were being taken up obviously by going to the intensive care unit because they're airway specialists so they right. deal with people that are intubated they deal with you know people that are really poorly and really sick in the intensive care unit it's a very specialist area um, and some anaesthetists become intensivists which means that they specifically do ITU but basically those two categories of people work in the intensive care unit looking after the patients that are really poorly and really sick so anyone that needs you know advanced airway management as in patients with upper upper respiratory distress syndrome uh, need an anaesthetist so with them out of the picture and being utilized we can't operate Right. So all the operations across the country basically stopped. Um, that meant that the um, private sector hospitals also had to stop. But what happened was that the NHS commandeered a lot of the private sector hospitals and they hired them, leased them uh, for the duration. I think it was for a period of about a year. Literally the whole hospital. The whole hospital. Yeah. All um, the staff as well. All the staff. So they were paying the hosp- They were paying for the hire of the hospital and the staff yeah, yeah. well uh, cleaners uh, cooks everything everyone. basically yeah. to to run that hospital for nhs purposes right but a lot of the private sector hospitals um were not utilized or if not as well as they should have been utilized yeah so there was very few hospitals that were actually could have could have been used they weren't used mm. you know um but also what you've got to remember is that all the other uh, sectors in the hospital came to a grinding halt as well because yeah. without operations you've got no outpatients clinics mm. yeah no outpatients clinics and you've got reduced cancer service clinics although they were still trying to operate i think there were a lot because they you know there was no outpatients clinics they were drastically reduced the amount of patients that were being transferred onto the the cancer pathways um you know there were so many aspects of the hospitals that came to a grinding halt so when you hear a lot of these stories about hospitals being empty they kind of were yeah. there were certain areas in the hospitals that were utilized and very very busy you know like itu and some of the wards where the covid patients were 
but every other area stopped. And it was a very difficult situation because what they were trying to do was separate COVID patients from non-COVID patients, which is a ludicrousity in itself, you know, because, you know, th there were operating theatres that couldn't possibly do to, you know, you might have four operating theatres in a suite and there's no way that you could have non-COVID patients coming through where you're treating COVID patients because right. obviously um, emergency surgery was still going going along. Yeah, that, you, that was still one of the <clears throat> pathways which was still open. So if you had a crash in, uh, and, yeah. and broke your leg in a car and had to go to theatre to have that operated on, those services were still were still running. Yeah. But obviously the protocols for testing patients, um, they were testing patients once they were in hospital. Is it too late then, really? It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the COVID was spreading from, was a lot of the hospitals were the centres, really, for where COVID was spreading yeah. from. But, um, yeah, so there were kind of multiplicitous problems associated with it, with, with you know, with stopping surgery, because it kind of stopped a lot of all the other kind of satellite areas of the hospital. So they really kind of ground to a halt. Um, but... I resigned from my contracted post in the December of 2019 and I was working bank because at the time I, you know, like I'd done nearly 40 years in theatre and I decided that um, I was going to spend some more time with my, I had an equestrian business at the time and I was going to spend some more time doing that. Um, so I resigned from my contracted post just to do bank and not realising that, you know, this issue was just over the hill so what, was, what's that what's bank Amanda? bank is um basically the hospital agency so the hospital have their own instead of having a contract you can work bank so all right, um, zero hours contract it's a zero hours contract yeah, okay. basically so that you can basically come and work when you want to yeah and because i've got skilly skills <laughs> i know that i'd always have work yeah. and in fact for the first few months of 2020 i was working probably more hours than i've done on contract right on bank but obviously, when all the operations stopped, um, there wasn't really much that I could do apart from do some agency work, um, which was only in ITU because all the operating lists had stopped. And because I've got airway skills, they wanted me to go and work in ITU. So I, that's what I did. OK. I worked in intensive care for a few months at the beginning when the way, you know, the first wave. And... Yeah, I suppose everybody was really concerned and scared. Nobody really understood what was going on, to be honest. It was a really strange time. Yeah. Um, we knew that there was this virus coming and, you know, we were kind of being prepared almost like it was a tsunami that was going to hit us. Well, we, we, we had the videos, didn't we, in, in Wuhan of people literally just falling over in the street. Absolutely. Didn't we? And then we had the, the, the videos of the hospitals in Milan and northern Italy where they were just overflowing, weren't they, with old people. Yeah. And we, we, you know... Well, I saw those videos as well, you know, and I saw those yeah. ITU consultants literally sobbing because they had no ventilators. Yeah. And, you know, and, and of course that... We were all terrified. Um, but the first time that I, I went into ITU, I didn't know what to expect, really. I'd worked in ITU before at different times. I'd actually nursed some patients with a, during the swine flu epidemic in ITU, right. um, which is the only other time that my airway skills have been utilised in ITU, because obviously they're transferable skills between an operating theatre and airway management and ITU and airway management. Not the same, 
but similar skills and we could, we are able to be utilised in that area. So that's what we did. We went to kind of help the ITU staff. And I remember the first night that I actually went into ITU, I was absolutely terrified because um, you have to be fit tested um, for a mask because the, the masks are, um, you know, the, the kind of masks that won't let anything bypass. You know, they're very effective. They're, the, you know, the, they're, they're called the uh, FF, uh, FP1863 uh, was my particular fit that I had. Um, but they use this special helmet to test whether anything gets through these masks this is before you even get into itu right so they spray this stuff inside you've got a mask on and obviously you've got this hood over the top and they spray this stuff inside and if you can smell it that mask doesn't fit okay right <laughs> yeah so yeah you have to go through all the masks until you find one that fits and then you've got to don and doff your ppe and that in itself is you know it's like putting on a space suit basically yeah. you've got a put on quite a lot of um, uh, protective gear, you know, to go into ITU. And there's, so there's nothing exposed. You've got no bits of your arm or skin exposed or anything like that. So you do look like you're in a has suit. Yeah. You know, um, and the first time I went into ITU, it was pretty scary. It was night time and the lights were dim because I always turn the lights down a bit at night. And there's all these ventilated patients, which I'm not averse to seeing. I see them in theatre every day. You know, but these were very poorly and very sick patients. Um, and it absolutely terrified me. I think I hyperventilated for the first 10 minutes I was in there. But you did, yeah. Um, and it was pretty scary. But after a while, you kind of get used to it. And you're in there for long periods of time. So you're in there for like four hours at a time. You can't just pop out for, a, yeah. you know, the loo or, or have a drink. You have to, because you've got to take take all this PPE off in a very specific order so that you don't contaminate yourself or anything else. Right. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a whole process of putting it on, taking it off. Um, yeah, and so it was one. It was a pretty you know worrying time, and the patients, most of them, are intubated. Um, the patients that are very poorly, the patients that are starting to get better, they change from a long endotracheal tube to a tracheostomy, and they take them off of um, regulated breaths to breathing for themselves it's called weaning so they they learn how to start breathing for themselves again um and those patients they can't talk obviously because they've got a tracheostomy in and there is a look of terror in their eyes because Mm -hmm. they you know they're very poorly very sick so the whole thing was filled with fear so i understand you know you know and that's why i get so angry about some of these really emotive adverts and things that they've used in itu Mm. um really putting the fear of God up of every, up everyone because um, it's a very unfair thing to do because we're looking at a very tiny percentage of people. Yeah. And this is what I came to eventually, that, it, you know, this is a, it's a very small percentage of people. And unfortunately, my colleagues, the anaesthetists and the intensivists saw all of them. <laughs> it, but there were a small percentage of people in a very small area. Do you understand what I mean? Mm. So it's like... What, what type of people are we talking about? What type of demographic are we talking about here? They were um, just general general across the population, I would say, but mainly elderly. Yeah. Um, quite a lot of um, obese patients. Yeah. Um, but it was generally sort of... And people with comorbidities, so people with a lot of underlying health problems. Yeah. You know, there was... You know, it would be very rare if you saw someone in there that was 
you know, healthy yeah. and didn't have any comorbidities. Any children? Yeah, no, no. Never saw any children. There was never any children in ITU. Um, and as far as I'm aware, there they haven't been. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my thing in, is really that they were people with comorbidities and people that were um, struggling with other things. Um, so, you know, but generally healthy people, no. Right. I wouldn't have said that that was the general demographic in, in there. Maybe the odd one or two, but um, no. So, you know, my main thing really at that point, um, once I'd got used to working in there, was to, um, you know, try and look for, um, hopefully, that theatres would start back up again soon. Um, and that did start to happen because uh, the, the numbers started to drop in ITU quite quickly. Yeah. So within a two-month period, really, they, they dropped. So by the time we're getting into May 2020... By the time were... they're getting into May 2020, yeah. they, the numbers were going down and down and down and down and down. So yeah. like eventually there were like no patients in ITU that were being ventilated. Right. Or very few, you know. Um, and then we were hoping... Like, so by August time, I think that they were again starting to think about starting operations back up again, but in selected sites so that they could keep the COVID and non-COVID operating separate. Um, but when the numbers started to drop in ITU, I found myself yet again for the first time in my life out of work because right. I'd gone bank and agency and there was no more need for work in ITU, but they still hadn't started operating at that point. Um, and I found myself out of work for about, hmm, I think it was about three months. The well, second time in a year that you were yeah, out of work. Yeah, I was out of work yeah. with, with the skills that I've got, yeah. you know what I mean? So it, there was no patients in ITU or not enough to justify having any extra staff. So that was that had already happened. Um, and then by about, I think, the August time, um, the private sector hospital that I was working at um, started to, they had a... A contract with the NHS where they'd used their hospital as a step-down hospital for particular non-COVID patients but their operating theatres were shut and then I think by August they were starting to operate again because the anaesthetists were freed up right they weren't in ITU yeah yeah so they were coming back and able to start doing operations but because we were still under an NHS contract I was able to um start working on a bank basis and it was a little bit here and there and then they offered me a contract it was an nhs contract because they were contracted to the nhs yeah temporary contract for seven months uh, which i took because i was concerned at that point yeah, <laughs> yeah, better, better get back on contract because it couldn't have been a worse time for me to yeah. drop my contract in the december before but um and so from from there um they started to operate on two lists were uh, nhs patients they were trying to utilize our theaters to help catch up on the nhs waiting list and one was um, the private sector
yeah, going back, um, if I can, yeah, yeah, to um, just at the point when I was working in ITU in the NHS, when the numbers started to drop, and that's when I applied for the Nightingale right. Hospital. Uh, well, just before that, but I didn't know the numbers were going to start to drop, so I'd applied thinking that would be a, a longer term contract for me to to have while yeah. all this was going on, and I'd applied to the Nightingale. Um, and then I went through all the online training and then they arranged me to go up <clears throat> and train at the O2 with the team. And it was on that day that they actually shut the Nightingale. Um, but at the same time, what I was seeing on the TV was still this mass hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. This is what was going on at that period in time. There was this still you know, showing pictures of people in ITU. Yeah, the queues of ambulances. Exactly. There was, this was all still going on. And I was looking at the whole thing thinking, what is happening? Because I know that there's hardly any patients in ITU. Now they've shut the nightingale and yet there's still fear messaging. And that for me was the turning point because what I was seeing didn't correlate to what, propaganda they were showing on the yeah. TV it was like it was just a world apart um, and that was the first point at which I started to question the narrative because I thought well that's a lie because I know that that's not happening so when you started questioning this narrative was it was it like did you used to watch the BBC did you read yeah, yeah, the absolutely. Daily Mail you uh, know well not well, necessarily Daily Mail but yeah. a broadsheet <clears throat> newspaper were, were, were these your main sources of information? Main sources of information were, were uh, mainstream media on the television. Yeah. Really, because, you know, um, I, I did read newspapers from time to time, but it was mainly what I read online. Yeah. You know, so it was mainstream media in terms of the television and also what you were seeing on, on your kind of social media platforms. Yeah. As well. Um, and also the opinion of a lot of people where they kind of still think this is a massive threat. You know, and I was seeing something completely different. Yeah. You know, I was seeing the numbers drop in. And make no mistake, it is a pretty miserable thing to have, but it's probably you know no no um, reflection on the on the patients that have died from COVID because there have been many patients that have died from COVID. But I I was seeing the collateral damage that that had caused because everything had become so COVID centric. Mm. The whole thing was COVID centric. And, you know, as we started to operate again and the surgeons would, you know, we were talking across the table, they were talking about the patients, where the cancers were, had been missed. They were seeing, you know, surgeries because they'd been deferred, that, you know, the outcomes were far worse for these patients. They were in far more pain. They had, you know, far more problems um, from all this time where they'd not been operating and like I say you know missing some of the cancers and uh, which is unforgivable really mm. and then you've got to look at you know the amount of people that were actually committing suicide and you know all the collateral damage that's happened with the mental health um, yep and you know the lack of finance or direction towards anybody that's been suffering in the mental health areas uh, I mean, all these areas have really been deeply, deeply affected. But, you know, it's not just about COVID. Yeah, yeah. This is about a whole industry, a whole medical health care industry that has really been left behind. 
you, by this completely COVID-centric do, approach. Do you know what like, gets me about that is uh, I, I remember, you know, the, the mainstream media narrative at the mm. beginning and they were like, it's a tragedy if even one person dies from COVID. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is, it is. But then you must be able to put that same sentiment on to the people who are dying from suicide, on to the people that have... You know, the children who are racked with depression. You, mm. you, you must be able to use that same measuring stick for this side of the equation as well. Mm. And we just haven't seen that, have we? I think it's been an absolute disgrace. I mean, I, I've got a, I, I, my cousin committed suicide during all okay. of this, and it was completely COVID related in terms of the fear. Yeah. You know, because he had mental health issues already. And he committed suicide earlier this year and it was, you know, and he was a beautiful soul, an artist, a very sensitive person, but obviously too sensitive for what was taking place. Mm. And there was a lot of fear and worry and anxiety about everything, you know. So, you know, no, that's fine, you know. But it's it's one of those it's one of those things that I think many families have have been subjected to, you know, Um, and I find it really disturbing that you know the truth and the reality of the situation um, has been completely distorted by the mainstream media mm. um, and you know we've got anaesthetists um, and, and surgeons as well you know unfortunately they're guided by their governing bodies which are the you know the royal colleges and yeah. you know what they what they um the, the diktat from above what they believe and what they practice really comes down through that filter of the of the medical colleges you know so you have to think that you know I, it's very difficult because i'm surrounded by people at work that don't feel the same way as me yeah yeah you know they um they see it very differently and they are just following this kind of almost verbatim the, the narrative on it. And yet I think many of them are starting to question it. And there are, there are a few that do question it. You know, I've, I've got colleagues that are questioning some of the deaths that they've had from vaccine related injuries. Right. Um, that they've been, you know, fighting the coroners on, 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 um, on that you know and also you know so, so, look, so the coroner is like the vaccine had nothing to do with yeah and, the they're, death. and they're actually saying well no it did because right. it was with, within 48 hours yeah you know um and they're just saying well it's, there's no transparency here what's what's going on so but they're still obviously they've got mortgages and families and homes Oof. and i understand where they're coming from but i don't think it will take much before they all start questioning more so you know I, I am hopeful for that but there's um you know the issue of the people that are, are now double jabbed and getting covid yes you know they're saying that 60 percent of the people now that are covid positive are double jabbed and that's borne out by some of the people that i've worked with uh, you know different surgeons and anaesthetists that have said that they've had uh, patients that have died you know mm. um from covid that have been double vaccinated that wasn't what they told so us that's was it? not what they told us mm. and that's uh, you know and as as it's gone along the story's been changing first of all you know we are completely protected and you are responsible and now yeah. it's like oh well that's perfectly you know it's, oh, it's like a gaslighting yeah oh, that's perfectly yeah. acceptable because it's not a perfect vaccine and we go 
well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, it's just this... Well, it's 95%, efficiency. you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. You just think, like, how, how much will will it take before they actually go, well, hang on a minute, this is just absolute bullshit. Yeah. You know, and it's almost like they're defending something that can't be defended, but they're still defending it at the moment. Yeah. They're not going to stop, though, are they? No. Yeah. And I don't know how that how that will happen, but you know I just believe that time will be the, the victor in this really, mm. and that gradually that these people, um, you know because I, again it, it's hard. I I understand how they feel. You know a lot of these guys have spent months working in ITU, but I've had recent debates and some arguments with different colleagues of mine who basically one who accused me of. Um, um, being a threat to everybody else because I was unvaccinated and said that I was risking everybody else and, I, and this was a consultant of many years experience and I just pointed out to him that it's actually a trial it's 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 a drug that's on trial that the data for the mid to long term doesn't come in until 2023 yep. that it was never ever designed for people to it, uh, not contract it or pass it on it was supposed to lessen the severity of the illness in the individual yeah, yeah. that's what it was supposed to so do so you don't die you don't end up going to hospital exactly yeah but that's that's what it, it's supposed to lessen the severity of it but clearly that isn't happening either is it i said to him so <laughs> but they you know any they can't say anything there's nothing they can say because that's the truth but it was but the, you know, the problem it, is, it's is so scornful. These are supposed to be like some of the most intelligent people in society. I know. You know, they're the ones that we go to for advice about yeah. health, and they just—is it mm. cognitive dissonance? What is it? Is it that they've had two of the jabs and that mm. they have to believe in it? Yeah, yeah. You know, is is the whole worldview going to well, be? Well, it's a little bit like if you start to unpick it then you have to unpick a big fabric of stuff and I don't think they're quite ready for that. No. You know, and and I think that, you know, for the best part, a lot of it is where they have been working really hard, especially the anaesthetists and the intensivists. They've been working really hard and I understand where they're coming from to a point. But it's like they try to, like this guy this particular day, try to use that as a baton against me. Well, I've just spent all this time in ITU or you are vaccinated. It's like, hang on a minute, that's... These two things are not mutually exclusive. The fact that you've spent this time in ITU doesn't mean that you can impose a trial drug on me. Exactly. I, I, I really, you know, that that is taking away my personal liberty. So no, the two things are not mutually exclusive. Yep. You know, so they can't use that as a justification. This is about our own liberties. You know, and right from the very beginning, a lot of my colleagues, when they knew that there was a vaccine coming, they were all going, me, can I have the vaccine? Yeah, you know, yeah. And there was probably about half a dozen of us that went, no way. And that was from the very beginning. So, you know, my, my views on the vaccine right from the get go were like, no, that's just took two months to roll out. Yeah, that's got no efficacy and safety with it. So you, a big red flag was literally the time scale that it they pulled the out. It was the time scale. Yeah. Because I just thought, you know, and I'm no anti-vaxxer. You know, I've had, I, I was vaccinated. The last vaccine that I actually had was for the swine flu. Right. Um, and that was, I think, in 2009 or 10 or something like that. It was nursing patients with swine flu. And they came round with the vaccine and they, they offered the vaccine and I took it. I didn't know any better, you know. And consequently to that, 
consequently to having that vaccine I, I actually was very sick for a few days but I didn't have any further effects from that but uh, consequently many many people were very badly damaged from that vaccine yeah. they died and they had narcolepsy yeah. and catalepsy and neurological disorders and fits and everything else still to this day to this day i yeah. think there was something like in just in the uk i think there was a, just under 2000 people that actually were severely damaged from mm. that vaccine and that was glaxo smith klein and i think that um they had it was another vaccine that was rolled out on an emergency license it had no safety data with it you know no mid to long term safety data they rolled that one out and they injected people with that and they they also had a no liability clause tied into that same as this one and so all the plaintiffs all the people that got that died and got seriously damaged from that swine flu vaccine um, the only recourse that they had was to go to the government. There's a, a vaccine damage program, but yeah. I think the maximum is something like about 120,000 yeah. that each plaintiff can get. Which is really, if you've got somebody who's severely damaged, is nothing. Yeah, yeah. nothing. Um, Come on, how? So you've got narcolepsy, right? Just for example, you can't drive for the rest of your life, and that will affect your employment prospects. No way. 120 grand. Come on, if you, what's that? Three years' wages for like an average wage, or a bit, a bit less maybe. That's nothing, is it? I know. For a lifetime. You know, it's for for a lifetime of damage. But you know, it just goes to show, you know, since since all this has taken place, and obviously when you begin to realise that the narrative isn't matching what's actually happening, and you start to ask the questions, then the more and more that I looked into it, it was like opening up a rabbit hole so how, 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 how did you come across this what, what was the what was the source of information that you suddenly saw I, I know you were saying like the mainstream media and, and the narrative just wasn't making sense mm -hmm. but did you start you know diving a little bit deeper did you did you look for other sources of information I did, yeah yeah, yeah. I, and um, to be honest I don't really kind of know how it started I was just searching um, and things were popping up and on, on social media and different things that I was looking into and my brother actually was um, you know he'd been telling me for a long time different things but I'd, I'd not been giving him any credence really because you know he, he, in my mind he was a conspiracy theorist and you right. know he was a bit mad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I soon realised he wasn't as mad as I thought he was Yeah. because the more that I started to read the more obviously it begins to then take you to other sources and then to other sources yeah. and you but and it's also about being discerning because you have to be able to look at the the data that you're being shown or the information that you're being shown and look at it and pick it apart and take out what really is ludicrous yeah to what is plausible that in my <clears> opinion <throat> that's the only way that i could do that with a with a medical mind is to be able to look at it and go okay what, what could be real here and the more that I researched it the more I realized that these companies have been in court more times than we've had hot dinners yeah. and I have to say I wasn't uh, you know I'm not I wasn't an anti-vaxxer but I think I've become one right because of the research that I've done yeah. because it's made me realize that these companies have been doing this globally all around the world for decades yeah and decades and they have caused more damage, you know, and you only got to look at something like the polio vaccine, the Gates 
Foundation polio vaccine that was rolled out in Asia and Africa. Yeah. And they'd almost eliminated the wild polio and they introduced a whole new strain of polio through their vaccines. Yeah. Voila. 470,000 permanently damaged children in India alone. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's like when you start to read things like that, your world starts to disintegrate yeah. because you realise... And, you know, look, I've never... I've never been completely, let's be honest here, I've, I've always been quite politically active and and um, socially aware. Um, and I came from quite a political family in the sense that, you know, my mother was in the peace movement. She was at Grenham Common. We were on marches, and right, cool. nuclear disarmament marches when we was kids, you know. Yeah. And my granddad was a socialist. So I was raised in a house where people were awake and aware. Yeah. You know, they, they they talked about things like the oligarchy and, you know... It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's these, these things were part and parcel of my growing up. Um, so it's not that I was completely without an idea of what was, you know, but because I, it was a very specific medical thing that was going on, the more research that I've done, it really did open my eyes more than anything else. That, that's ever happened to me um, and, and that's obviously also had an impact on every other area that I look at in my life and in society generally yeah you know and I feel like all these jigsaw puzzle pieces which I've been carrying around for all of these years with you know the kind of socio-political ideology that I've had all these things are kind of you know coming together all the jigsaw pieces are, are beginning to make a picture that's starting to make more sense yeah you know it's it's strange isn't it i mean if you um all, all of the information's out there isn't it you know mm. all, all, all along like, you know they've never actually done a a, a placebo study for childhood vaccinations mm. a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study and you would have thought that that is the first thing that they ever would have done in order to prove if a vaccine works or not. Mm. And all of this information is out there. And that's the crazy thing. And it's only when you begin to realise that, you know, the BBC aren't reporting on this. They're not telling you this. And then suddenly that just opens up a whole other question, doesn't it, about how information is distributed mm. and, and why it's distributed like that. But yes, yes, sorry bit of a tangent there um but yeah look we've been going on for quite a while now uh amanda i mean that's, that's come right, they do then we're for one yeah but um can i just one last question actually sure. about this um what is your you know for somebody who works in a, in a, in a theater environment in a hospital what's your opinion on masks oh that's a bugbear of mine is yeah it? it is because before 2020 we weren't wearing masks in theater well so apart from orthopaedic procedures, where we still wore a mask, um, there were no masks being worn, even at the operating table. So that's in all other spheres of surgery. And that came about because the Royal Colleges um, and the peer-reviewed data which had been presented showed that they were completely ineffective after three minutes. Wow. And that what they do is they basically stop droplet spread. So, you know, they stop the surgeon kind of dribbling on your wound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the uh, the data showed that um, infection rates with or without masks was, you know, basically the same. Right. Um, and so they stopped wearing them. 
and that was coming down from the Royal Colleges, so we weren't wearing them. Wow. So it was a real shock to me when they started to mandate the use of face masks in public because um, A, I knew they didn't work, and B, I knew they never worked against viruses because viruses are less than 0.25 of a micron. Yeah. So they were never, um, you you know, able to stop transmission of a virus. Like I say, they're for bigger airborne droplet particles. So it's, it's like so, a, a fence of chicken wire trying to stop a fly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, so really the kind of standard face masks and the leopard skin print. Right, the cloth one. Cloth thing yeah, that yeah. you're wearing is it's really not going to cut it. No. You know, so... Um, when you've been used to going into an intensive care unit where you're um, having to wear, you know, heavy duty PPE and masks that you have to have a proper fit test in yeah. order to see whether they're effective or not enough, was laughable when I started to see people outside wearing masks. But they know that there's, you know, very little transmission of droplet in the outside anyway it just yeah. gets blown away and even in the indoors what is it actually doing nothing you know the heavier droplets they know it's airborne but it it's aerosol yeah you yeah. know so they know that this thing uh, uh, it just is unbelievable that you know they they can get an entire nation of people to wear something that's completely and utterly ineffective against transmission of a virus so for me, that was the other huge thing that oh, I began to realise then that it was about control and they absolutely had nothing to do with transmission of a virus. Yeah. You know, so for me, that's a huge thing. And and it's very interesting because my, one of my really good friends at work, she um, uh, wrote the policy on mask wearing theatre. She spent a year researching really? the mask data. And she wrote the policies for um, PPE in theatre, specifically theatre masks. Throughout the NHS and private hospitals in the UK? For our particular hospital, but it was taken, it was, was, all the research that we've done was taken from all the data that's available to us from the Royal Colleges (laughs) and all the relevant peer-reviewed papers. Um, And she's still got that information, so I might try and grab that off of her, actually, because it's very hard to search for it now because they've removed it. Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> which is it's astounding but if you talk to anybody within the medical profession they'll tell you anyone who worked in theatre they'll tell you exactly the same thing that masks weren't even worn in an operating theatre you know for at least four four years before 2020 wow. because the data was suggested that they were ineffective but is this not making all of these you know staff in theatres realise I mean but that's the really strange thing because you say this to them and they still wear it. No one's. No, I. I it, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So they, they must know that it's not for their health benefits. Well, clearly they do. They're yeah. just towing the line. Virtue signalling. Yeah. You know, is that what it is? Yeah. 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 You know, and I think most people, to be honest, that, that I've spoken to, and I do get to speak to some people, but most people seem to be, you know more concerned about their jobs and their mortgages and yeah. and you know let's just keep quiet and toe the line and you know do what we're told for now it will change so you kind of they, i think they live in hope mm. you know but um 
there are it is growing and there are many now that are questioning what is going on and they're also questioning the narrative both within the medical field and the narrative generally so you know for me that's quite hopeful that is positive yeah you know, and it's positive and we have to come away with that that as time goes on that people will be out of sift the wood from the trees yeah I, I i that is hopeful i really really want that to happen but there's just one thing that goes through my mind because you know the nhs nhs is such a large organization mm. You know, all of these people are direct employees of the government. And it's like, if they were to stand up and speak out or, or you know, just make a stand, mm. there's, I, I know that you, you're employed in the private sector as well, but you can't take the whole of the NHS and go into the private, can you? Mm. It just wouldn't happen that way. And yeah, as you say, people worry about their jobs, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, but like I say, you know, it's a, it's um. It's a bit like, do you take the red pill or the blue pill? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think for a lot of people, they're not ready to take that pill. No. Um, but there is, you must never, ever underestimate the power of planting a seed because there's been many people that I've spoken to over the last few months that initially were very anti and very angry, all the anti-vaxxers mm. and all of the people that were kind of speaking out against the narrative and they were quite vocal about it but and now if they're not really quiet they're starting to ask questions so i can see a shift good uh, and all we can do is really pray and hope that as time goes on that more and more people will that will happen to yeah um but i think fear's been a, a huge factor in all of this i think that the government's done a real job on people yeah they've you know terrified people beyond belief and they've lied beyond belief you know, um, the figures and the stats that, that they put out on a daily basis, you know, if you can really read between the lines, looking at case numbers instead of deaths. And, you know, now I can tell you that there's no one in ITU or very few people in ITU now. Wow. And they're talking about the biggest rise and, they, you know, all these yeah, COVID yeah. numbers. They're talking about cases. And now they know the PCR can't distinguish between flu and, and, and COVID. It's bullshit. And it's probably it's can't distinguish between most things. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, it, it depends on how many cycles you set it at, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, you know? they're running at 45 cycles at the moment. Everything's so positive then, isn't it? Exactly. Everything's yeah. going to be positive, yeah. you know, including your grandmother's toenails. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but we live in hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, look, that was lovely. Thank you very much. That's I mean... Right. We had so much more to cover there, but I think we'll leave it there. And if you'd like to come back and do another one at some point, um, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Brilliant. Thanks, Amanda. That was great. Really refreshing to hear somebody with all of that experience and their personal story about what's been going on during all of this. A couple of things I would just want to bring up on the outro. I mentioned at one point about there not being a vaccinated versus unvaccinated clinical study done. This was mainly for childhood infectious diseases. I'd just like to play the following clip. This was on October the 27th, 2012. This is Congressman Bill Posey, who was uh, a congressman for Florida. This is the Congressional Hearing on Autism Research by the CDC, obviously the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, first of all, you're going to hear Bill Posey speaking, and then you're going to hear Colleen Boyle, Dr. Colleen Boyle, 
who is the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention's Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities Director. She held this post for many years and she only actually retired last year, just at the end of last year in 2020. So let me play you this. Um, I, I wonder if the CDC has conducted or facilitated a study comparing vaccinated children with unvaccinated children yet. Have you done that? We have actually done a, a number of studies looking at the relationship between um, uh, thimerosal vaccines and autism and other developmental disabilities. And um, there have been since, uh, actually over the last decade, there have been numerous studies looking at the relationship between vaccines and that the aspects. That the CDC conducted? Some of them were conducted by the CDC. Others were conducted by... Um, how how many would you say, would you estimate? I would actually have to check with the specific numbers, but I know there were two. One, one large study looking at various neurodevelopmental disorders, um, and the second one that would focus specifically on autism. Uh, and those were, those were fairly recently. Recent uh, would you see that my office gets a copy of those, please? Of course, of course. Um, do you believe additional study uh, will provide useful data in assessing the safety of childhood vaccines? The IOM has evaluated this issue um, back in 2004, and again most recently in 2011. Um, and you know their conclusion again it was not just looking at the work that was done at CDC, but with the total body of evidence was suggesting that um, vaccines and their components did not increase the risk okay. for but, autism. But my, my time's very limited here. So clearly, definitely, unequivocally, you have studied. Uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Uh, we have not studied vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Oh, that was, okay, this, uh, actually, uh, never mind. So just okay. stop there. That, that was the meaning of my question. You wasted two minutes of my time. There you have it. 2012, a representative of the CDC admitting under oath in front of Congress that they have never done a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study for childhood infectious diseases. This blows my mind, to be honest, because I was educated at a very science-based grammar school here locally in Kent. We would design an experiment and we would try and prove or disprove the outcome of that experiment. But what had to occur in order to make it legitimate was we have to have a control group and a control group is... In, in this case, it would be a whole load of kids that haven't had a vaccine that's just sitting over there doing their daily lives without vaccines. That's what we compare everything to. Then we go and give this group of kids over here some vaccines. And then we, we sit back and we look, we observe, we use empirical evidence in order to gain our results and make our conclusions from it. If those kids have a better healthier life that have been vaccinated than the ones over there that haven't had any vaccines then we know that the vaccines are good and safe and and a benefit for anybody who has them the problem is is that they haven't done this you know we've been vaccinating kids for for decades and decades now and this one simple experiment hasn't been done 
it blows my mind. It really blows my mind. And it should blow your mind too. I had to bring it up. And as I said in, in the previous episode, everything that I want to do on this podcast is going to be sourced and referenced meticulously. This is how science works. This is how we need to do things. Now, the second thing that I wanted to bring up, just by sheer coincidence, on on the day that Amanda and I were recording this podcast, the JVCI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, published their advice on 16 and 17-year-olds receiving this COVID-19 vaccination. Now, I'm going to play a little clip from Professor Wee Shen Lim, who is heading up the JVCI today, and this is what he has to say. Thank you. Last month, you may remember, JCVI provided initial advice regarding vaccination of children and young adults aged 12 to 17 years old. And today we are updating that advice. I'd like to start by mentioning an important point from the very outset. When considering vaccination programs for children and young people, JCVI's main focus is the balance of potential benefits and harms for the individuals being vaccinated. Vaccination of children and young people can bring benefits to other people, such as adults and including parents and grandparents. But at the forefront is the health and the benefits to children and young people themselves. When formulating this advice and our latest review, we took into consideration a range of other factors and the very latest information. I just want to run through some of the many different factors we considered. The first is the frequency and severity of adverse reactions following vaccination. And Dr. uh, Dr. Jun Rain has commented on this already. There's also the impact of delivering COVID vaccines to children and young people on other school-based vaccination programs. These include meningitis, for instance, or the influenza uh, vaccinations. We looked at the frequency of severe COVID in children and young people in particular. Thankfully, it's extremely rare or very rare for bad outcomes to occur. Right, let's break that down. Frankly, it's very, very rare for bad outcomes to occur. Basically, what he's saying there is that children do not get COVID. If they get COVID, they will be in bed for a couple of days at the worst. And then they will have a lifelong immunity to it. They have now decided that children who are 16 and 17 need to have this vaccination. Now, no, no, seriously... Pretty much no children have died from COVID whatsoever. Looking at this article here from the BBC, this is data from the first 12 months, uh, the 9th of July. So this data shows COVID and children in England. 251 children were admitted to ICU from March 2020 to February 2021. One in 50,000 chance of a child being admitted to ICU. 25 children and young people have died as a result of COVID-19. Now, most of those would have had 
underlying health conditions here's a breakdown around 15 had life limiting or underlying conditions including 13 living with complex neuro disabilities six had no underlying conditions recorded in the last five years though researchers caution some illnesses may have been missed and a further 36 children had a positive covid test at the time of their death but died from other causes the analysis suggests so look two in a million absolute risk of death from children dying from covid19 and they want to start vaccinating 16 and 17 year olds because of it i want to bring you back to one other thing the professor we shin ling said then and he it's to go back to the point that i was making that where's the study done for children having covid vaccine and all of the other vaccines childhood immunizations that they have that they have where's that study they haven't done that study you know so how can they possibly know that this is going to be a good beneficial thing for these children when it's in conjunction with all the other things like the meningitis and the hpv they don't because they haven't done the studies they haven't done them they're not going to do them and they're just piling on this bullshit they're bringing this on to our kids without any scientific evidence and it's disgusting it's absolutely disgusting i'm just going to play the last little clip that he did the hospital that i work at uh, we are now seeing young people who are unvaccinated being admitted to hospital with quite severe covid Many of them need oxygen support, and sadly, some of them also need a ventilator machine to help them to breathe. That's his justification for vaccinating 16 and 17 year olds, that some of them have been admitted to hospital. Now, we spoke to Amanda, you know, just in the interview just gone. She said she, she didn't see kids of that age on ventilators at the height of this pandemic okay fair enough I, I i i gave her a call i asked her i said amanda listen to what this professor wee shin lim has just said and she said okay fair enough look i don't work in a pediatric hospital and these children would be going to hospitals like that but she hasn't seen it i haven't seen it he hasn't professor wee shin lim hasn't provided any evidence to say that the the, the hospitals the pediatric hospitals are overflowing with children on ventilators in august in the middle of summer and they've decided that they're gonna vaccinate the 16 and 17 year olds now it's, it's it's just one one step further and all of the children over the age of 12 are going to be vaccinated and then it's one step further all of the primary school children are going to be vaccinated where's the evidence there is no evidence and this is what's just maddening about the whole thing look i had to bring those two things up just to let you hear what's been going on but they are coming for the kids they clearly are and we've got to stop it enough is enough let's just stop this bullshit right much love to all of you i really appreciate it. this is the first interview on the podcast that we got through and i hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did it's just beginning we all need to do our bit listen to vernon coleman and a little sound 
clip that I put over the, the song that's going to come out at the end there. We all have to do our bit. So much love, and I will see you next time.